Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Genesis. Hopefully you can find that one. Oh, Children's Church. In fact, this is a special Children's Church moment. Uh, Children's Church are going down, but seventh, seven-year-olds through eighth grade need to go now if you're going to be a part of the Christmas Eve worship team, okay? So if that's all of you, go ahead. Uh, but seven-year-olds through eighth grade can be in the Christmas Eve service worship team if you want to be a part of that. All right, now take your Bibles, the rest of you, who wish you were on the worship team, and come with me to Genesis 12. Page 9, if you're using the Bibles we have here today. And we will be uh, going to a number of passages. We don't often do that, but I really want you to follow along. So in your Bibles, you'll be looking this up, or I'll be giving you page numbers for the four or five passages that we look at today. Recently, I've been reading in the Old Testament, just specifically finished Isaiah. And when I say reading Isaiah, if you've read some of the Old Testament prophets, you kind of don't read them, you slog through them and try to go, okay, what is this about now? Because the reality is that as you're reading something like Isaiah or Jeremiah, sometimes they are speaking about something in their time, you know, like 600 years before Christ. Sometimes they're talking something about the life of the Messiah who's coming, that's prophecy, during the first century AD. Other times, and in fact, much of the time, Isaiah is speaking of that thousand-year millennial kingdom, still future to us. So you're kind of boggled by where are we, and yet, here's here's what God's impressed me about. That's how God sees time. He sees the whole big picture, the whole sweep of what he is doing in the world throughout time. And while we are so absorbed in the present, you know, what are we, what am I doing this afternoon? No Packer game. Or what are we, honey, what's the schedule this week? We're absorbed in the present. God is orchestrating this vast plan. And so as we come to the month of December and want to focus on the, the coming of Christ in his birth, I'd like us to look at some of the Old Testament prophecies. Because you see, as we look at Christmas, we're looking at 2,000 years ago, but as we go actually today into Genesis 12, we're looking at the promise of Jesus looking 2,000 years ahead, so this is 4,000-year leap in time. So let's read uh, again these first three verses of Genesis 12. The Lord had said to Abram, and by the way, Abram and Abraham, same person, just sometimes uh, differently stated. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. In the title, I've borrowed the phrase from Tiny Tim at the end of the Christmas carol, God bless us, everyone. That's what this promise is about, that God had in mind blessing literally everyone through whom? Through a descendant of Abraham. 
So as we read and in, 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 start reading in Genesis 12, you're always, when you, when you come to Scripture, you're dropping into some kind of a historical context, right? So we need to kind of understand the shape that the world is in because it, it affects how you see things. If someone had been in a coma the last two years and just now woke up, we'd have to give them a little historical context that they were waking up into a pandemic type of a world. So Genesis 12 follows Genesis Genesis 11, I learned things like that in seminary, but Genesis 11 really records a spiritual disaster after Genesis 6 began already with another spiritual disaster, because in Genesis 6, the whole world had become corrupt and God sent the flood and and only preserved Noah and his family and started over with humanity. That's Genesis 6, but by Genesis 11, the world is in terrible spiritual uh, condition again. In fact, the people had become so smart and advanced that they decided they wanted to build a tower to actually get to God, to get to heaven, whatever that would mean. And, 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 and chapter 11, verse 4 actually says the real spiritual problem was that they said, we want to make a name for ourselves. God doesn't take lightly when someone wants to make a name for themselves. But do you notice what we read in verse 2? He promised to Abraham, I will make your name great. So God doesn't take well to when we want to exalt ourselves, but sometimes God delights to exalt the humble and chooses to to honor them. And that's exactly what he was doing here for Abraham. But in spite of the sin and corruption of chapter 11, this is the time in which God reveals his deep love and his grace. And God picks Abraham to launch the family, to launch the nation from which God would send his own eternal son, the God-man, Jesus Christ, to bless us everyone. So the Lord had said, let's jump again into verse 1, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. Some translations say that he said it or had said it because they're trying to reflect, and they're both accurate, that it's most likely that God had revealed this to Abraham twice. Once while he was in his hometown of Ur, and again, partway on the journey when he was in Haran. Acts 7-2, Stephen records that God had spoken to Abram back in the hometown, and God just picked this one man and talked to him. Let's get a little bit of a geographical context as well. So Ur of the Chaldees is here uh, in, in modern Iraq, probably about 200 or so miles south-southeast of Baghdad is the hometown if, we, if biblical archaeologists have, have found it correctly, uh, somewhere in that area. And the destination that God is taking them to, we would know to be the land of Israel, part of then Canaan. And so that's the destination that he didn't know about, but where he was going. And our passage really takes place kind of midway. It, the only way to travel is not across the desert, but you travel across the top of the fertile crescent, and that's how you get from point A to B there. So leave your country, your people, and your father's household to go to where? He said, I'll show you. It's like 
Leaving home without a GPS destination. Scary, right? But that's exactly what... In fact, if he had told them, all that Abram might have known is that whatever Canaan is, it's, a, it's, it's uncivilized, it's barren, it's, uh, the people are hostile. But Abraham says, yes, I'll go. Keep in mind, this is when Abraham was yet an unbeliever. And God just spoke to him, the creator God spoke to him, and out of his polytheistic, mini-God environment of the, of the Chaldeans, he now decides to obey. So Abram is this guy living in a big metropolitan capital city with whatever modern conveniences were at that time. Probably had hot bread around the corner at the bakery, evening, dinner, wine with friends. And God says, I'm going to tell you where to go, but I'm not telling you where you're going. Unthinkable to say yes, unless you had a direct encounter and heard the audible, literal voice of God the Creator. And so they leave. If you look in chapter 11, verse 31, we find out who it was that went. It's Abram and Sarah, or Sarai, his wife. Abram's dad, Terah, and a nephew, Lot. And so they're the ones that travel from Ur up to Haran. And chapter 11, verse 32, you see that Terah, the father of Abraham, died there in Haran. So now God speaks or repeats himself to Abram. And says, okay, now you need to go. In chapter 12, verse 4, we know that they did leave. And so it's Abram and Sarah and Lot that go. And make their way all the way down to, well, Shechem and others where they will then uh, begin. That's where God says, I'm going to keep my promise to make you a great nation. Make you a great nation implies you'll have children, lots of children. But if you look back in verse, chapter 11, verse 30, what's the problem? Sarah was barren and had no children. How old are they at this point? Chapter 12, verse 4, Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. So that second leg of the journey, he's a 75-year-old man. Uh, Sarah is about 10 years younger. And so they're getting kind of old. But God says, I'll make you a great nation but Lord, I need children. And we know that from the rest of the story, chapter 21, 5, that when God finally answered that promise or fulfilled that promise, that Abram was 100. So you got 25 years from age 75 to age 100 where there is no child. And yet in the intervening chapters, chapter 13, chapter 15, chapter 17, God keeps promising family, children. He says, in fact, he says, Abram, look at the sky and see if you can count the stars. That's how many children and descendants you're going to have. Right, Lord? I have zero. Do God's promises sometimes feel empty to you? Something he promised you and it looks like, yeah, this, this, should, this should happen. But it has not happened. Does that mean that God has broken his promise, or that is yet unfulfilled, or sometimes that 
His promises are fulfilled in ways that we would not have expected or we were expecting a physical blessing when God was bringing a spiritual blessing or whatever it might be, but we feel like somehow the promises of God don't fit my situation in life. I'll supply for you, I'll encourage you, I'll be at work in you, I'm at work in the people you love, and and we wait and we wait and we wait. The last song we sang was about, great is your faithfulness to me. We all love the idea of God's faithfulness, right? You know when God is faithful? While we wait. That's when he exercises his faithfulness. And that's when we learn his faithfulness, is when it's not yet clear what he was doing. And so Abraham kind of becomes the poster child of waiting on God's faithfulness, and sometimes he learns the hard way by not waiting well. But I'll make you a great nation. So a great nation requires that you would have children. He's waiting on that. Being a great nation would also require that you have land, a place to call home, a place that you name this place by the name of your nation. We live 4,000 years later, and we know, oh yeah, there's a land of Israel. We get it. And we forget that there wasn't always a land of Israel. There wasn't a land of Israel in the time of Abraham. But of course, read the Old Testament, there's a land of Israel, and it has kings, David, Solomon. There's Israel, right? But then it was jeopardized as we come to the, uh, about 600 B.C. in that era when, when the Babylonians came and, and, and destroyed the city and took all the people away. It's like the nation didn't exist. But then we see the faithfulness of God, Ezra, Nehemiah in the Old Testament, and, and they get back to the land. They rebuild the temple. They're a nation again. We read the New Testament, and there's a nation of Israel, right? Jesus is in Jerusalem, and, and there's tension. But if you follow the history, then shortly after the time of Christ, A.D. 70, the Romans come in, that this, is, this is just our history, is the Romans came in and destroyed the temple, the city, and there was no nation Israel from A.D. 70 until modern times. There were Jews, and those with a Jewish identity were then, were then attacked by Hitler, who tried to, in this satanic mind he tried to destroy God's people the Jews who were promised these things by Abraham and he tragically exterminated many millions of them but he didn't exterminate them he didn't succeed and Hitler died in 1945 three years later 1948 there's a nation of Israel reborn. And so we're used to there being a nation of Israel that has land, and they have land, and they have people. If you look back to the population of the the Jewish population in that area, if you go back to the 1890s, over 100 years ago, there were only 25,000 Jewish people living in what was called Palestine. There was no nation of Israel. 25,000. But by the time they became a nation in 1948, there were not 25,000, but 700,000. And you keep following the history just from those generations ago. Today, there are 7 million Jews in the land of Israel. 10 times the amount of 1948. Do you think God isn't faithful to his promises? but it's 4,000 years later. 
God is faithful. Not only will I make you a great nation, says God, but I will bless you personally, verse 2. I will bless you. That is, blessing is this term that it's not technically the grace word, but it's the word of I will bestow my divine favor on you. You will receive from me. In fact, the word bless or blessing occurs some five times in these two verses. Do you notice at the end of verse 2, God's reason for blessing Abraham? There's a lot to learn from that. I will bless you so that or and you will be a blessing. Why did God bless Abraham? Because he would be a blessing. God did not bless Abraham so that Abraham could simply indulge in blessings and live a very good, very lucky, very happy life. That's not the motive behind God's blessing. God doesn't pour his blessing into jars with lids. God pours his blessing into pipes, connected to pipes, connected to pipes, connected to pipes. Because he intends to multiply his blessings. God's capacity to bless is infinite. So why would he pour blessing into those who would only hold it closely? Um, Follow the story of Abraham and you find just in the next couple of chapters how he blessed others. Next chapter, he and his nephew Lot, they got so much stuff. God has blessed him financially for one thing, but they both have so much stuff they got to kind of separate. And, and, and Abraham says, go ahead, take the best part. Choose the best part. Chapter 14, Lot runs into trouble, gets captured by this army, and Abraham gets his people together, and they go rescue Lot and take in all this loot, and then Abraham pays tithes to this king, Melchizedek of Salem. It, it just, you just see this generous heart of Abraham. I will make you a blessing so that you can bless others. And in fact, I will treat others based on how they treat you. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. Hmm. There, there is a, a biblical political principle here. Don't oppose Israel. Hitler learned it the hard way. Um, anyone hating Israel should be warned. The nation of Israel... Of course, we have to understand, though, is not a predominantly Christian nation at this point, uh, but it still exists in God's plan because God's plan has not expired, and we see the nation of Israel clearly in uh, the, the future, biblical future of prophecy. But, but Israel's survival as a nation is not the true climax of this passage, but rather the ultimate fulfillment is in this final line, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Is, I don't know any way to express a bigger promise than that. That through you, I'm going to actually bless everybody on the globe ever. How's that possible? How's that possible? If we, if we only had this passage, we would kind of look at it and go, huh, wonder what that means. In fact, there's no way that Abraham could really fully understand how all the world... All people, all time could be blessed through him. But we now know, and it's something we can rightly call the Abrahamic covenant or Abrahamic promise. And um, it's not just stated here. It just keeps coming up, as we'll see today. So 
God repeated it to Abraham, Genesis 22. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you've obeyed me. I told you once, I'll tell you again. He repeated it to his son Isaac. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. And then to Isaac's son Jacob, chapter 28, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. It's, the Abrahamic covenant or promise is a very big eternal deal. Because the only way that everybody in the world could be blessed through Abraham is through the descendant, Jesus Christ. This is what we celebrate this month. God promised to bless everyone. And it was such an important promise that he gradually in the Old Testament years, a couple thousand years, began to unwrap this promise so the, so the people, the nation, the world would be prepared for Jesus and that we living after would forever look back in gratitude for what God had done. And so verse 4 simply says that Abraham did what God told him to do. He makes his way down towards Canaan, just trust and obey me, and he goes away to this unsettled land. If you were to read, good, good recommendation, Genesis 12 to 25, read the rest of Abram's life. You'll see he experiences a crisis of faith when God doesn't come through in his time and, and Sarah, we're just not getting a baby and God said we're going to have this great nation. And so Abram has a baby with their maid, Hagar. It wasn't God's will. You know, what is also remarkable is how God even through Abram and Sarah's failure and sin, produced other nations. The child Ishmael. The Arab and Muslim world today looks back at Ishmael as a, as a spiritual father, and, and, and we have those nations. That after that crisis of faith, God, through the angel of the Lord, appears to Abram at dinner time. The angel of the Lord and two other angels come and say, Abram, Promise is still on schedule. This time next year, you'll have that baby. And we follow the promise that was then fulfilled, and Isaac is born. Only to have yet another incredible crisis of faith just causes us to cringe to read the story of Genesis 22 when God says, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice, kill your son Isaac. And this man of faith was willing to do it, was about to do it, and God provided a substitute, a ram. What a beautiful picture. God would supply a substitute to die in Isaac's place. All these were tests of Abraham's faith <clears throat> that this promise would be fulfilled, and yet Hebrews eleven thirteen reminds us that Abraham died without ever seeing them fulfilled as so many of the Old Testament people of faith had to do. They died without seeing the big picture. Are we okay with the fact that God's promises don't have to all be seen by us right now? That we don't have to know how it's all going to turn out, but that's what faith is, is to understand and accept that God's goodness will be, good plan will be accomplished with whatever going on in our life, the world, or whatever it is. Because his plan is a lot bigger than our calendar. In fact, our, our, our concept of time, I think, is a whole lot... Our time concept compared to 
God's, it's a lot like a child's concept of time compared to ours. And you know they don't always understand time. We have a grandson in St. Louis. <clears throat> always very excited to come to our house, specifically known as Grandma's house, <laughs> Grandma Litke's house. So when he knows there's a trip coming, it's like every day. Are we going to Grandma's house today? No. Today? No. After about 30, 40 days, that gets a little bit old, but he's kind of getting the concept of, of time now. But aren't we a lot like that where we just kind of expect, oh, God promised something now. And we expect it now. You know, the last couple of weeks as we finished up First Timothy, we kept coming to this principle of living now with eternity's values. So, so yeah, there's a, there's a cost of waiting to obey Christ now when it might be painful because we have the perspective of eternity where we say, I'm really glad I made that decision. Even applied in the last major paragraph of 1 Timothy to the issue of, of finance, finances and, and wealth and, and the fact that we would, we would use wealth for eternal dividends. Instead of resenting God for delays, what if we just embraced his timeline? Said, God, whatever you're doing, however long it takes, I'm not going to insert myself all the time. I'm not going to try to control and manipulate your will. Because what we're really doing then is expressing our will. I will trust your timing. Well, the promise to bless the whole world would be fulfilled in none other than Jesus Christ. Make your way to uh, Matthew chapter 1. So the very beginning of the New Testament, page 783, if you're using our Bibles. Abraham, 2,000 years before Christ, couldn't unwrap all those promises, but we are starting to see how that exactly is what happened. And so the opening of the New Testament, the, the very first book in our order, and, and it's Matthew, of course, writing after the time of Christ, but he begins with a genealogy of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and he says, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, proving, of course, his humanity. <clears throat> A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, right? Abraham, the father of Isaac, father of Jacob. And so we see that Jesus is said to descend from Abraham. Jump ahead to verse 16. At the end of this genealogy, we discover that actually it's Joseph's genealogy. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Fascinating, uh, clarifying verse that Jesus was born physically, biologically of Mary, but not Joseph, the way the grammar of that verse reflects it. But that does raise a question for us. So why do we get Joseph's genealogy if he's not really the true biological father? And yet somehow in, 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 in God's heart, the, the father role that Joseph played in Jesus' life was that significant, tracing actually the kingly line through the son of Abraham. Next week we'll talk about the son of David. Turn ahead to Luke 3. There's another genealogy that is somewhat different, and, and it's, that's entirely something possible. Your genealogy could be traced back through different lines, and still they would merge again someplace in the past. 
This genealogy is, is got, raises a lot of questions. Probably the best explanation, though, is that this is the genealogy of Mary, which would mean then in verse 23, at the end of this verse, we're going to meet somebody named Haley, uh, and uh, that would then be Mary's dad. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. Again, virgin birth, not biologically fathers, uh, uh, Jesus' father. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Haley. Well, he didn't have two dads. The word son is, it seems, used more broadly as it was sometimes of son-in-law. If so, this is Mary's dad. Either way, there are at least two genealogies, probably of Joseph and Mary, that both go back to where? Abraham. Look at verse 34. The son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. So this promise from 2,000 years later is that Jesus would descend from Abraham, and in fact it seems that he descended on both Joseph and Mary's uh, side. The promise was repeated then not only to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, as we saw, but it continued to be repeated. And, and, and in fact, after Jesus had risen, ascended to heaven, the church began, it was Peter's second sermon to the Jewish people that he brought up how Jesus was indeed the fulfillment of this promise. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You, you Jews, are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, here it is, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. The promise was fulfilled because it was promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Samuel, other prophets. And now Peter's beginning to look back at it, just like we are 2,000 years later. So Jesus actually did come exactly at the right time. Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, that's Mary, not Joseph, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Now this blessing is starting to be lived out, and the blessing is what? And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Galatians it has a wonderful way of, of um, defining some things, defining how we are saved eternally. It's by faith alone. It also defines what you could call sanctification or how we grow or are transformed. It's through the Holy Spirit. Saved by faith, transformed by the Holy Spirit. And these benefits have all come to us because in the fullness of time, Jesus came and now we're sons. We're sons and daughters of, of our Heavenly Father. In a special sense, God has sent His Holy Spirit. So this third person, the triune God, <clears throat> now indwells each one of us. And so whether we are needing God when our heart is breaking, or when our heart is praising Him together like we do here, we relate to Him now personally as the one we know, as a Father saved, transformed, and dwelt by the Spirit so that we can talk to him as, as our heavenly daddy, Abba, Father. We are living out the blessing that was promised to Abraham. And yet the promise 
of that blessing is not complete. It was to all peoples. All peoples have not yet heard. It's why, it's why the task of sharing the good, good news continues. That's why we send out missionaries. You see Doug and Nancy, Dale and Holly headed to the Philippines. We have Nikki serving that purpose where she's at in Georgia, Rhett and Stacy in Papua New Guinea, John and Rebecca in Paraguay, Tim and Sis preparing for ministry overseas. Others, I'm not mentioning everybody, but do these blessings come with responsibilities. So we, we send people out. That, that's why we have those yard signs. I mean, it's just a, it's, it's a yard sign. But some way in which we could prompt discussions so that you and I can invite people to come and see because this is the blessing that God designed for all peoples ever throughout the world. And that includes the neighbors. That's why in a week or two we're going to be uh, doing a, a, a direct mail piece. Every, every, every mailbox in Sockville and Port Washington, you'll, if you live in these areas, you'll, you'll see it yourself. But just inviting people, just telling them about our church a little bit, to, to invite them to, to maybe look us up online or something, and, or to best of all, come and see. Maybe that'll help start some conversations for you as well. I urge you to pray about how you can, can help uh, make that effective. So while we enjoy already, as believers in Christ, we enjoy the promises of, of God to Abraham through Christ, it is our responsibility to communicate it. And the most core truth, the most essential part of the message that we communicate is the part that is most misunderstood. Turn with me to Galatians 3. One more passage today. Galatians 3, page 944, if you're using our Bibles again. The book of Galatians addresses the most dangerous false doctrine in religion today. It's the most dangerous false doctrine because it addresses the most important question. And that is this question. How can a person who is a sinner be made eternally right with a God who is holy? How can sinners ever go to a holy heaven? Because there's a prevailing view that the only way we can hope to get to heaven is trying to be better. A little nicer, a little less naughty to please the divine Santa. It is a prevailing view. If you did a, if you did a survey on the streets, even limiting your survey to those who believe there is a God, okay? You believe there's a God. You did a survey and said, what do you think it takes to get to heaven? The prevailing answer you would hear, because that's what I hear, is, well, I, I, I'm trying to be good enough. In, whatever that means to them. Church stuff, religious stuff, personal stuff. How many do you think it was? Is it, is it 50, 60 percent? Is it 70, 80, 90 some percent would say, you got to be good enough. And that is why it's the most dangerous doctrine, because it addresses the most important issue. And so, 
in Galatians, Paul is writing to these people to make the point, you are saved by faith. And his example, just like Abraham. Chapter 3, verse 6. Consider Abraham, he believed God, that's the same word as faith, put his faith in God. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture that we just read foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles, that's us, non-Jews, by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. So what Abraham was hearing was the gospel, like we've seen. Gospel, good news about Jesus. And what was that specifically? That all nations will be blessed through you. That final line, all nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. What, back in verse 6, what did Abraham believe about God? Or believe God about, even? He didn't know about Jesus specifically. He knew about God's promise, and he believed whatever that promise was, and we know that the promise was Jesus Christ. And that simple, humble faith is why the holy God of heaven looked at Abraham's account and stamped it righteous. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteous. It wasn't because Abraham was righteous. He wasn't. He sinned. He made plenty of mistakes. Read the whole story. Just like us. Credited. We cannot be righteous enough to qualify to go to a holy heaven to be with a holy God. We would ruin it. And so since we cannot be righteous, we need to have righteousness credited to our account. Just like if you couldn't afford to pay a fine... But somebody else, a friend, could. It could be credited to your account. We cannot be righteous. So who would be righteous enough to put righteousness on our account that would qualify? Only Jesus. Only the one who was completely righteous. And that's why God came to earth in the form of a man. So that while born at Christmas, he could die on Good Friday and be raised Easter or Resurrection Sunday so that by his righteousness we can be made righteous. And those who believe then are the true family of, of Abraham spiritually. The promise is repeated, all nations will be blessed through you. Jews, non-Jews, Africans, Asians, Canadians, Americans, tribal people, and the neighbor next door with a noisy dog. Everyone and can be blessed with eternal salvation only if the righteousness of Jesus is applied to their account. Why? Verse 10. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it's written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. You see, you, you, you would have to completely obey God's law. And no one does. He's not referring to bad laws. He's referring, he's referring to God's good command of the, old, of the Old Testament. And no one can keep them all, so heaven is pass-fail. 
One, one failure, and you no longer qualify for heaven. Romans 3.23 verifies what, what this point is making. Uh, the point he's making, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one qualifies. So that's why we must be given or credited with the righteousness of Christ. How can that be? Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. That's a reference to the cross. So what was happening on the cross is that Christ, being the fully righteous one, took the curse that we deserve, took the judgment of God that we deserved. And so God poured out the judgment that we deserved on Jesus. Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. Verse 14, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham, what was the blessing given to Abraham? Being credited with God's righteousness. He redeemed us, a a money word, he paid the price, he, he paid our sin debt, in order that the blessing given to Abraham, credited with his, God's righteousness, might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. So we could both be eternally forgiven and be continually transformed by the Holy Spirit. All this comes together because of one choice that every person must make. That the blessing of being credited with the righteousness of Christ would be on your account. You must make a decision. That decision is described as faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. And so my question for you today is have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Or are you one of those who says, well, I'm going to try to be nicer and less naughty? Do you understand that it is by faith in Christ and faith in Christ alone? The word faith basically boils down to the issue of trust or reliance. What are you trusting in for eternal life? If I were to ask you, what are you trusting in for eternal life, what, what would you say? There's one of really three answers that we'll talk about. I call them CW and C plus W. Let's read the verse. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourself. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. No one's in heaven bragging. I deserved it. I got here. So which one are you trusting in? Are you trusting in C, Christ, that he died for your sins and rose again? Or is it W, good works, something that you're doing that somehow you're going to qualify yourself? Or would you say, I'm going to cover all my bases, Christ plus works. But you're saying if you don't have works, then you wouldn't qualify. So really, the second and the third circles are actually identical. Because he made it very, very clear that we are saved by grace through faith. Not of ourselves. It's a gift of God so that no one will boast. Not by works. So just probe your own heart. What are you trusting in for eternal life? Because this is the most important decision in the world. Because when you make this decision, it's an invisible decision, remember? It's between you and God. Where you say, I believe that you 
died for my sins and rose again, and so I'm trusting in you and you alone to forgive me and give me eternal life. I just would like to invite you in these coming moments if we could just uh, bow our heads and think. If you've made this decision, pray for those who maybe haven't. And if you're thinking or considering this decision, I'd ask you to, to, to express this to God in some way. I'm going to give you some sample words you could use. So you would be praying something like this. And even as I, as I give these words, uh, you could make this your prayer in sincerity to God. Dear God, I realize I'm a sinner and that I deserve your judgment eternally. I'm a sinner, I realize I deserve your judgment. And then to express, I realize that Jesus, your eternal perfect son, died in my place on that cross. That Jesus died in my place on the cross. And so right now I'm putting my faith, my trust in Jesus Christ, who died for my sin and rose again. I'm putting my faith in Jesus, who died for my sin and rose again. Thank you, Lord, for the free gift of salvation. And now, Heavenly Father, I just want to pray for any who have been speaking in sincerity before you in the silence of this moment. I pray that the, their hearts would be clarified to understand the gospel, to both acknowledge their sin as well as to recognize that's exactly why you died. I pray that they would uh, simply put their faith in you, or if they have any questions, oh God, that they would speak and get it clarified. And now, Lord, we just pray for those of us who have put our faith in you, that we would live lives that reflect that, that we would not just uh, be uh, silent or invisible. We would communicate with others. We would express our faith. We would live it out. And then, Lord, we pray for this community and, and any of those in the area that uh, are within, with our own our influence as a church or individually in, in our influence, Lord, that we could communicate this great message of the good news of Jesus Christ to them. And we do this, Lord, for your glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.